Good morning. I'm Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. We are in for a real treat today. We have a New York Times bestselling author, Kevin Sessoms, here to talk about his book, I Left It on the Mountain, as our in-studio guest. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, uh, to kick things off, before we jump into I Left It on the Mountain, which is a very compelling read, um, could you share with our audience a little bit about your background and education background and some of the great things that you've done in your career? Uh, my education background, well, I'm a product of the public school system in Mississippi. Some would say that's not a pretty not a good background i guess uh but that's where i come that's where i come from and uh i went to college for a couple of years in mississippi Millsaps college a small liberal methodist uh supported institution and then i moved to new york city and attended the juilliard school of drama for one year and the rest of my education was uh learn living life i guess you know that hard, that hard knock kind of education. Uh, and I was an actor for a while, and then I worked at uh, Paramount Pictures and Marketing. Uh, and then I was the senior editor and executive editor of Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, and a contributing editor and the fanfare editor of Vanity Fair Magazine, and a contributing editor of Allure and Parade Magazine. And I've written for Elle and Marie Claire, uh, Playboy, and Out. Daily Beast uh, website, uh, now I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine called 429 out in California, in San Francisco. It's as if, uh, the way I describe that magazine, it's as if uh, Andy Warhol's interview magazine and the New Yorker had an assignation, which is a nice word for what I'm trying to say, and the result of that is uh, a queer child, because I think the term queer is a... Uh, it's taken on a cultural connotation instead of a sexual one, so it's a little more all-encompassing. Excellent, excellent. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, sir. And, and, uh, and you're, you know, and with all of that great experience, uh, of course, you did that famous Richard Gere interview in Vanity Fair back in the eighties. Yeah, I've talked to them all. Yes. Or, or, or my attitude is they talk to me. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I, I was first intrigued. I was sitting at my uh, table on a Sunday morning reading my Sunday New York Times, and there was this compelling article about a gentleman named Kevin Sessoms, about his rise and his fall and now his rise again. And it talked about this book that he was working on, I Left It on a Mountain. And I, I was, this is the first time I've ever so compelled, but I wrote you an email. I tracked right. down your email address and said, hey, I really enjoyed reading your story. Um, would love to talk to you more about that. And we met up uh, in New York uh, back in December during one of your visits, and we had a compelling, compelling conversation uh -huh. about your book. I, I really wish I recorded that conversation because <laughs> it was so good, but I'm so happy I, to have I, you on the program. <laughs> And I'm so happy to have you on the program. But let's talk about I Left It on a Mountain. First off, the title. Tell us about uh -huh. the significance of the title. Well, uh, 
I had converted to HIV, uh, and it was I was living in Miami at the time, and I got assigned a, a cover story on Penelope Cruz for Allure. I'd already done a cover on her for Vanity Fair a couple of years before that, and really liked her. If we're straight, I'd have probably made a play for her. I sort of fell for her, had a, had a crush on her. And I flew to Paris, and uh, the way I interview people is I don't have any secrets myself. I sort of let them know whatever's going on in my life. And while we were strolling the streets of Paris, uh, confiding in one another, talking, uh, she said something was wrong with me, and I said, you know, that was a little more trouble than the last time we had hung out. And I said, well, honestly, I just converted to HIV. And we had a discussion about that. And then fade out, fade in. She, at that point, she was uh, dating Tom Cruise, and I had uh, done a story on him and sort of bonded with him, and we became sort of acquaintances. And I got a note from him uh, saying that Penelope had told him about my illness and some, some other things that will make private. And, uh, but when I read that word, illness, I, it didn't matter who had written it, whether it was something famous or not, but when I saw it, like, in sort of a codified term of what I was going through, it upset me. I thought, I'm not ill. I'm HIV positive. I'm not ill. I got a diagnosis. I, I don't have AIDS. Uh, and semantics are very important to me as a writer. And I just thought, you know what? I'm not, how do I prove I'm not ill? And sort of, sort of simultaneously, as that was going on, I got an invitation from a friend of mine to join a group of his friends to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I thought, you know what? This is coming just the right time. I'm going to climb that damn mountain. I'm going to make that summit. I'm going to prove to myself and Tom Cruise and anybody else who thinks I'm ill, I'm not ill. And maybe, just maybe, if I climb that mountain, I can break myself down enough and have some sort of epiphany. If I break myself down spiritually, uh, physically enough, I can have some sort of spiritual epiphany that I can find a way to forgive myself for what I've done to myself. Because I thought I was just a stupid faggot for having converted so mm -hmm. late. And I should, I mean, I'm using the F word because that's the way I felt. I felt mm -hmm. like beating myself up. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry for some listeners are offended by that word, and I'm also sorry if some listeners aren't offended by that word, but uh, so I set out to climb that mountain and find a way to, to forgive myself, and it just wasn't happening. It just I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. So when I made the penultimate summit, where you sort of get to this above the cloud line, and you see the glaciers, and it's sort of this amazing view, I told one of my uh, guides that what I was climbing it for, and I was, you know, I was HIV positive, and I was trying to find some some self forgiveness on the climb, but nothing was happening. So let's just turn around and make the damn summit. And I made this, I made the summit, and uh, then we started to descend. And as we we're making the base camp the next day, this guy called me up to the front of the group and said, "Do you see this plant here?" And I said, yes, it's everywhere. It looks like it's a weed, sort of, which is everywhere. He said, well, you've been surrounded by it. And on the mountain, because he was a member of the Chaga tribe that lives on the on the, on the mountainside, he said, uh, we in the Chaga uh, refer to this plant as the forgiveness plant. And it's been around you the whole time. Mm. And I think you need to know this uh, based on what you told me yesterday. And he walked away. And I reached into my backpack to take out a 
my uh, Swiss Army knife and was going to cut. And, and, and he said, on the on the mountain, when when, they, when you have a fight with a friend or you have a fight with a family member, and you want to forgive them, you take a cutting from this plant and you hand it to them, mm-hmm. and in that way they know that they are for for given. And then he said, that's why I should I should know about this. So I took the knife out and I was going to cut it and give it to myself at the very end. At the very last moment, I was on a down mountain. And when I did, when I bent down, I heard my dead father say, son, what are you doing? Mm. And then I heard my dead mama say, there's nothing to forgive. And I stood up. I did not cut the plant. And I lasted on the mountain. Now, it's written more beautifully than that, but where the title comes from. Beautiful, beautiful. And what compelled you to write this memoir about your struggles? I had to save my life. Um, when I was deep, I mean, this book, it's got celebrities in it, this book, and, it, you know, it's, uh, it's got a lot of stuff like that in it, but it's also about addiction and recovery, and it's a spiritual book, and when I was in the deepest, darkest throes of my crystal meth addiction, mm-hmm. putting needles in my arm and shooting it in, in my veins and losing everything. I mean, I lost everything. I was homeless. I had no money left. I, was, I mean, it got really bad. Uh, I thought, how am I going to save my life? I need to save my life. i got to save my life. No one's saving my life. I've got to do it. And I thought, I've just got to be the truest self, my truest version of myself, the best, truest version of myself, which is a writer. So I set out to write myself into sobriety. That's the only way I knew how to do it. I had a friend who had gotten out of crystal meth addiction by being a political activist. He became an activist against it because that was his truest self. And I thought, I'll just write myself out of it. So I began to write this book when I was still a, a using addict. And I wrote myself into being a recovered addict, wow. uh, a, re- a recovering addict. Uh, I became the narrative. Uh, I just had to, I had to write myself into being a sober person, and that's what I did. You know, I read one of your passages, which you mentioned to me in our discussion. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you felt that you had to lose your Christianity. Could you, ex- uh, could you explain that to yeah, us? Yeah, uh, I, I, I also walked the Camino de Santiago to, to Compostela, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very deeply spiritual, religious, Catholic path in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was raised an austere Protestant. I know I went to a Methodist church. I was raised in the, in the Methodist church. I mean, I only, I only went to a Methodist college. I was raised in the Methodist church. And, mm-hmm. uh, and honestly, I walked it because I thought it would make a great chapter. I mean, that was, that was the mercenary impulse as the writer. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I think I'll go walk the Camino. That's, that's a good, fat chapter. And it'll be good to, like, pair it with the climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. So I flew to Spain, went to France, crossed the Pyrenees on foot, and walked over 500 miles for 31 days. and got to Santiago. Um, and what I discovered on the path ironically, was that I was not a Christian. Mm. Uh, I let go of that construct in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying 
I'm not denying Christ. I'm not denying God. I believe in God more deeply because I let go of that construct. What happened was I expanded upon it. Uh, that I sort of let go of this westernized idea of Christianity of good, bad, dark, light, uh, devil, God kind of construct and uh, found a more overarching spirituality that has a lot of room for lots of uh, belief systems. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, God is big enough that, you know, she doesn't have to be constricted with just one idea of what she is. And, um, so I pray to God every night. I say the Lord's Prayer at the end of it. I chant to Ganesha and Parvati, his, his mother. I chant some more. Um, and letting letting go of that Christian, it was almost cultural for me. Instead of spiritual, it was cultural. And for me to say that I'm HIV positive, or I'm gay, or I'm a recovering addict. Those are easy things for me to say. I can say those things really easily. For me to say I am not a Christian at this late point in my life, I'll be 59 in a few weeks, it's harder for me to say than all those things combined because of the way I was raised in Mississippi in this very conservative culture culture of Christianity and Protestantism. Um, and it saved, it has saved me by being able to free myself from it. I know that some people, I mean, Christianity is based on salvation, and it's all about saving your soul and you know, saving yourself. Well, ironically, God uh, came into my life and saved me by allowing me to let it go. And I'm not denying that aspect of my spiritual practice. I'm expanding upon it. So if you find your salvation through Christianity, more power to you. I'm just saying I didn't. And I, I just think we're, I think finally what we're all trying to do is heal. That's all we're trying to do in this life is to heal. And if you can find your way towards healing by your Christian faith, more power to you. If you can find it in, in some other way, more power to you. I mean, if you find it through Ganesha or Allah or, or any, you know, any, uh, in the, in the Jewish faith, any, or like me, you, Ganesha in, in, in your life, or you just have your own beliefs. I mean, I've created my own sort of uh, spiritual uh, theory, whereas I believe we are, we, there's consciousness here, there's sort of this free-floating consciousness, and we're born from it. We're born from consciousness into this human form, and it's painful. I mean, being born is painful. Coming through that little opening, and your mother's screaming, and you're screaming, and then the doctor cuts, cuts the cord in this violent act, I mean, it's a violent, painful thing. And from that moment on, that's what we're experiencing. I think from then on, consciousness comes into a human form to experience suffering, whether it's emotional or physical, because consciousness is too blissful to really get what the human condition is. So it comes to learn. It comes through the human condition to learn what that is. And then when when we die, it's not death. It's another birth. We're born back into consciousness. And give and we give consciousness a little bit more omniscience and more knowledge to know what we have experienced in our little lives. That little bit of suffering, it sort of understands what what that is again. And I, for Christianity, that's called heaven. They've created the narrative of heaven. For me, all our lives, as we struggle to heal, as we struggle to heal, as we struggle to heal, that moment we die is the moment we heal. 
because mm-hmm. we're accepted back into consciousness. And we don't even know what that feels like. As, as humans, we have no idea what it feels like to heal. But that moment we die, I think we find out what that is. Now, that's my own little cosmology kind of idea that I got walking on the com- Camino. Um, and it may be total BS. Fine. If you think it's BS, fine. It helps me mm-hmm. to sort of live my, my life. So, Kevin, how did you fall from the heights that you were and get involved with crystal meth that caused you to uh, to have that huge stumble? Well, you know what? I'm an addict. And when I have these kind of conversations with people and they try to dissect it and they try to figure out why someone does this or why someone who, thinks, who seemingly has an, an amazing life stumbles and falls and why you stick a needle in, in, in your arm or, or, you, or you become a drunk. Why, 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 why? I cease caring about the why. If I cared about the why, I think I'd still use. If I, were, if, I, if I were mystified by the why, I would still be using trying to answer that question. The way I stopped using was I just surrendered to the fact of it. The fact is that I'm an addict. I'm just an addict. I, I don't know why. I just surrendered and accepted. And sometimes I mean, it sounds like some you know, weird cone, like Buddhist cone maybe, but I might as well give a shout-out to Buddhism. I'm giving a shout-out to er- er- everything else because I am a theist. That's what I am. I'm not, I'm not an atheist. I've become a theist. And where I live my life is between the A and the T, that <laughs> sort of mysterious little little space there that, that in its small little space there's this vast and that's where I choose to live my life. And to me, my sobriety even is mysterious. I don't, I mean, I'm not even, I don't even consider myself a 12-stepper. I consider myself a two-stepper. I go to meetings and I don't use. I go to meetings and I don't use. And I sort of get out all the rest of it in osmosis. And so I'm no poster boy for sobriety or 12 steps or, or any of that stuff. I can only tell my own personal story and, uh, so, I'm so, damn it, I'm telling it. <laughs> yes, you happened. are. Yes, you are. I've been, I've been following you on Facebook, and the number right. of interviews that uh, you are involved in are just tremendous. And folks are writing great things about your book. Was it a particular goal that, I mean, of course, as you said, the book helped you to, uh, uh, with your sobriety. But is there a particular goal that you wanted the book to have with the external public? Well, you know, I've, I've been, it's been out for a week now, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to get traction for it, and I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. I'm doing a lot of these radio interviews. I'm doing a lot of press and, uh, and, and public appearances. I'm about to leave on a small book tour on Monday, and uh, I've gotten caught up in the media frenzy of it, trying to, I'm, I'm beginning, you know, I was beginning to measure its success based on the first book, which is a New York Times bestseller, and this didn't become the New York Times bestseller list. I was going to feel like a failure, and, and there's this sort of chaos that happens in your life when you just book lots of media stuff to do as you're as you're trying to get traction for a book. I mean, it's, it's hard out there for a pimp. You know, it's hard, and, and I'm out there like you know selling, 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 and I've begun it. And congressly to feel not sober as I'm sel- as I'm telling people about a book about getting sober. I mean, there's this sort of 
odd chaos that I've been in and frenzy and, and my mind hasn't been stilled. And although I've been going to a couple of meetings a day while I've been in, in New York, I just felt a little uh, whipsawed by it all. So, mm-hmm. And I've lost sight of the, what the impulse of this book was, was to be of service. And and the and the appearances should be of service. I mean, the way I should measure the success of this book is not how many copies it sells or if it makes the best bestseller list. The way this book is going to succeed to me is if if it finds its audience, which I'm trying to help it to do. I'm not going to stop trying to help it find its audience, but the measurement of the success has to change in my mind, and it's begun to change in my mind. I'm beginning to talk about it openly now, so I can convince myself of it. Is that you know, if one person, I, I do mean this, if one person who feels hopeless out there, who is in the throes of their own addiction um, or alcoholism or any form of hopelessness, if they can read my book and know there's hope, if they can use this book as a sort of a lever to be the best versions of themselves that they can be, to be the truest version of themselves that they can be, to get themselves out of the limb of it, addiction and hopelessness, and the book has succeeded. Uh, even, if, even if it's only one person, then it was God's will for me to write this book for it to reach that one person. That is awesome. And when, when you think about the book and the lessons learned, are there some key lessons that you felt that you, you have learned through this process that you, you want to highlight to our listeners and people who are reading your book? Uh, the main lesson I've learned is I don't know anything. That's the main lesson. Uh, uh, to me, God is everything I don't know. That's God. Uh, and that's vast, because <laughs> I don't <laughs> know a lot. And, uh, and I guess why I finally come down to it, uh, I've I've, I've developed a new appreciation for kindness. I think kindness is finally maybe the most important thing in the world. Just a, a simple act of kindness, just to be a kind person, is important to me. And and also, what's important to me is is that uh, and I and I pray for this. I pray for this every day and every morning and every night. That no matter what happens to me, whether it's the best thing in the world and I beyond my dreams or something tragic and awful and and just I don't think I if something that awful would have ever happened to me and everything in between no matter what it is that I react in the same way which is with grace and humility that I can be a graceful and humble person in the face of whatever life gives me whether it's high highs low lows uh success or homelessness, whatever it is, I want to be the exact same person to happen to me. And speaking of, of homelessness, which you, you, you've dealt with, and one of the, the very most challenging parts of that was having to part with your, 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 your two dogs for yeah. a period of time. For three months. Wow. Uh, my, my two little, I mean, you know, I'm cliche, honey. I'm an old homo with two small dogs, okay? I, I own it. That's what I am. And uh, there's a reason for free cliches, I guess. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm away from them for a month right now. I mean, I'm on the road for a month with, with this book. I left home. Uh, 
a week and a half ago. I don't get back to, I'm, I'm now living in San Francisco. I don't get back there till I guess, March 19th, maybe. Uh, so I miss them. Uh, they taught me unconditional love. and uh, uh, Yeah, but that's, it got so bad for me, I couldn't take care of my dogs. I had to give them up for foster care for three months. I mean, when you can't even take care of your dogs, that's pretty bad. Uh, yeah. That's, that's when I, that's, that was the moment I surrendered that I realized I'm an addict and I've got to get, uh, I've got to get my stuff t- together. Sorry, I, I maybe shouldn't curse on, on your. Well, on your you know, uh, Kevin, uh, when I met you, uh, you were 100% real, so. Uh, I think my audience will appreciate that. Okay. You know? All right. Okay. All right. You're, you're very, you're very giving. <laughs> I, to, I in, don't want to get you uh, in trouble with the powers that be. With the FCC, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, it's you're such a giving individual. Uh, I, I would, I would, I would challenge folks to uh, become friends with you on Facebook because you know everybody in Hollywood. And no, I don't know everybody. Quite a few folks. <laughs> yeah, I know quite a few folks. That's true. Yeah. And so, your first book was was titled, if I if I'm correct, Mississippi Sissy, correct? Uh-huh. Right. Uh huh. And that was a, a New York Times bestseller as well. Well, not as well. It it was. This book is not yet a New York Times bestseller. Oh well, we're go- we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take it there. We're gonna get it okay. over the top. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> And um, as you as you travel around, what are some of the 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 comments that you're hearing from the the audiences? Because I see that you're doing a lot of live interviews uh, with on the stage. What, what are how are people reacting uh, to "I Left It on the Mountain"? Well, I, you know, everybody has his or her own re, own, re, own reaction. Uh, one of my favorites was one of the bad reviews. I, on Amazon, I'm paraphrasing now, but uh, I, I read it with a Southern accent. This woman had to have been Southern. She said something like, uh, uh, I wish he hadn't gone into such uh, details in the sex scenes, and when he had a whore on the bed and compared it to being spanked as a child, well, that was just too mind-messing. And uh, once I read that he had coaxed, stuffed up his bottom hole, I just couldn't care about his spiritual journey anymore. <laughs> that was the first time that was the first time I wanted to read my own damn book. Mm. So thank you, bad review on on Amazon. I hope I didn't just shock your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tell you, when they meet you in person, they're going to see that Kevin doesn't hold back. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Kevin Sessoms, the author and writer of I Left It On a Mountain, which is now available at all of your book outlets, including Amazon.com. And so, Kevin, where are you going to be this Saturday? Uh, Saturday, I'm going, I think I have Saturday off. Okay. Uh, I'm in Barnes and Noble on uh, it's Saturday. I have Saturday off, and Sunday I'm giving a, a like a book party and a and a magazine party because I'm, I'm I, in addition to this book, I've closed a magazine at the same time the last couple of weeks, and so I'm, the, the next issue of Four Two Nine is coming out with James Franco on the cover. It's a the conceptual issue I, I call it, and the concept of the James Franco cover is the straight James Franco talks to the gay James Franco. Yes, and, yes. And he, and he wrote these 
the story himself as if it's a recorded a transcript of a recorded conversation between those two Francos. So I think a lot of people will find it rather interesting. Yes. And also, uh, is 429, is it available in digital format as well, audio? It, well, the, the, well, there's a website called dot 429 dot The number is 429. The, the magazine is called capital F-O-U-R, capital T-W-O, capital N-I-N-E. Uh, but the website's dot429.com. It's different than the than the magazine. It's got different content and it's a different sort of read. But uh, but they can they can go online and see dot dot429 also dot429.com. Wonderful, wonderful, Kevin. Believe it or not, we are out of time. Well, it's been lovely yet again. I felt like we we were sitting at French roast all over again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Kevin Sessoms, the author and writer of I Left It on a Mountain. Kevin, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Thank you, Mr. G. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this weekend. I want to thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can catch the show on iTunes U under Seton Hall University and Leadership. Remember, leadership begins with you. This is Darrell Gunter, your host. Have a great weekend.